MP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to the show Rosemary Kane. And she is with us today because we want you to know about the play she has written that will be performed at Hawks and Reed this Saturday at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday at 2 o'clock. The title of which is, well, welcome back to the show. And for those of our listeners who say, wait a second, I kind of know that name, Rosemary Kane. She is a brilliant musician. She is a, uh, she has played the harp in here, a very large instrument, somehow got into the studio one day and just blew our minds. She is an author. She sings with the Young at Heart Chorus, where she is a star, and just one of the most creative, beautiful people we know. Welcome back to the show, Rosie. Tell us about the play. Let's start with the title. Let and me then start I'll... by saying I don't recognize myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny story. One of my first recollections of yeah. Rosemary Kane is somebody came running from Sylvester's over to the radio station and said, J.K. Rowling is having lunch at Sylvester's right now. And I ran over there to think that I was meeting the Harry Potter author, <laughs> who she has a striking resemblance to, and also a... Uh, more of an Irish brogue than J.K. Rowling has, but an accent at the very least. And turns out it was Rosemary. But a great way, a great way to meet her. What a disappointment. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely well, not. Oh, goodness. Okay. Uh, Margaret Mayer and the Celtification of Emily Dickinson. That's Mar, my friend. Thank you Mar. very much, Monique. Mar, I'm sorry. <laughs> M-A-H-E-R, like Bill yeah, Mar, And like right. my grandmother. That's right. Yep. Okay. Maybe she's related. Yeah. Okay, right. Margaret Marr and the Celtification of Emily Dickinson. Tell us what it is, who's in it, who is the cast, and I guess an outline of the story. Uh, this question is, talk to us. Well, a book came into my hands called Made as Muse, and this is a piece of research done by a woman called Aoife Murray on the Dickinson servants. Because they and had the servants. The servants. They had a large spread, they had a farm, and they had a huge staff, both Irish and African-American servants. They were, by all reputation, terribly anti-Irish. And Emily said of the Irish, they should all be scientifically eliminated. Wow. But... So much for renaming, <laughs> so much for renaming Emily. <laughs> well, we I would just say that her reputation has kind of taken a hit today. Wow, that's <laughs> a big one. Isn't it? Well, I think that she's done pretty well. I think she's had her own share of success. Emily. I draw the line we at genocide. Yeah, we, we won't. Yeah, yeah, we won't quarrel with that. So this character sort of jumped up because she Margaret sort Marr? of had, yes, Margaret Mar. So she had this kind of period of initiation working for the elite of Amherst, the Boltwoods. And so she worked... As in Boltwood yes, Walk in the, Amherst? That, mm -hmm. The very ones, and the Boltwood Inn. Now we don't... Lord Jeffrey has been decapitated, as we know. Yeah. Like many men of monuments. And soon <laughs> Emily Dickinson herself. <laughs> That's going to be my next campaign. <laughs> Where Lord Jeff goes, can Emily Dickinson oh, be far behind? Oh, okay. Anyway, we leave that. That's a question for the scholars. <coughs> anyway... Um, so she had this period of initiation, and she was greatly thought of. She was intelligent, she was charismatic, she was hardworking, albeit uneducated. I think her education ceased at about age 14, but she was literate. She came with her sister and her sister's husband, and they were the Kellys. And there are still Kellys in Amherst who are descended from Margaret Maggie Mars. 
sister and brother-in-law. And when you say they came to Amherst, they came to Amherst from Ireland? From Ireland. So when? So that's in, in, the, 18, in the 1850s, early, 18, early 1860s. So this is a sort of a strange trajectory for Irish immigrants, especially women, because they were the biggest export from Ireland, but they generally went to cities. They were sort of sick of swilling out buckets for the swine, and they went to the city. So they worked in big houses for people that had many servants. So they didn't really come to small towns, but they did. By some quirk, they ended up in Amherst. And Margaret worked for the Boltwoods, namely Clarinda Boltwood. And Clarinda was very fond of Maggie and was having children, and they traveled between Amherst and Hartford. But there was sort when of... When you say that, hang on just one sec, Rosie. So uh, the elites of Amherst have servants mm -hmm. who work in their homes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Margaret Marl was one of them. She came mm -hmm. from Ireland. She went to work for the Boltwoods, and she would travel with them when they traveled from... Amherst to Hartford? Yes, and their and they're, they're increasing family. So Edward Dickinson, Emily's father, put an ad in the paper, wanted a woman who can manage the household. He had two daughters, and he had the idea that domestic work was character-forming. So they weren't allowed to sort of sit around and do embroidery. I mean, they really had to do hard domestic work. But, of course, Emily wanted to be upstairs writing her poems. So... There was a kind of bidding war for Margaret, and Edward Dickinson won. And then Margaret... As Mar against the Boltwoods. As against the Boltwoods. Okay, so the Amherst elites are fighting about who should be their servant. That's right. Okay. And, and so Margaret now has a period of initiation. You know, she's sort of come off a farm in County Tipperary, and she's been with the Boltwoods, and she has a very nice relationship with Clarinda, she says, I haven't half enough work to do here. I'm forced to play with the cats. So she was an industrious person who liked lots of tasks in a day. This is Clorinda Boltwood? Boltwood. Okay. Yeah. So now we'll say she's at, she's at the Dickinsons. And she comes from the land of from the From one elite to the next. From one elite to the next. Okay. So she really has um, more than a nodding acquaintance with poetry. And um, so she has this new mistress... And she sees her writing poems on envelopes and scraps of paper and running upstairs and sort of avoiding her domestic duties. And, and so if it's not so much a work of scholarship, then the imagination leaps to, well, what was she saying? And what would go on upstairs and write a poem and I'll do the swilling and I'll do the dusting. And the relationship then is in the kitchen where servant relationships and class distinction has a chance to diminish as people talk to each other over the baking. So Emily Dickinson and Margaret Marr and other servants are together in the kitchen, notwithstanding that Emily Dickinson had a uh, position about the Irish that was, how to say this, uh, mean. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we'll get that occasionally. So then... We know that Emily got more, she had more accolades. She won prizes for her baking. For her baking? She did. This is true. This How do you know all this? <laughs> it's, well, the research was done by Aoife Murray. It made it very easy for me. Okay. So she wins prizes for her baking. And now we have the evidence of that because she makes this very famous black cake. 
and the black cake is a black cake. It's made with molasses, and there's actually now articles written about where does this come from, and it comes from the Caribbean, and we bring in the slave trade, and, and so now the cake becomes political, but it is a black cake. So I've written one song while everybody is in the kitchen, you know, making the black cake. And, um, and so Margaret is saying, you know, would you just go upstairs and write a poem? And she says, well, um, you know, I have prizes for my baking and it's prizes for your poems you should be having, not prizes for your baking. And so she has seven poems published, we know, during her lifetime of the 1800 that remain. How accurate is all this? This is accurate. This is the story of Emily Dickinson? This is, well, this is the story of Emily Dickinson. Are you, the, do you have a passport or some sort of special <laughs> dispensation to be able to go to Amherst now? <laughs> well, this So is, much for the Belle of Amherst, really. Right, the Bard of Amherst. Well, as well known as she is, the backstory, which I find so interesting, is not well known at all, and, and especially this relationship with a maid. Tell us how it translates into being this play that you've written. Again, Hawks and Reed, 7.30 this Saturday and 2 o'clock the matinee on Sunday. Tell us about how you turned it into a play and what the play is like. So then in the lore and the mythology of the Dickinsons and Emily, Margaret has a trunk that she brings across the Atlantic. And over the period that she's there at the Dickinsons, 30 years, um, Emily is hiding her poems because we know that she was famously reclusive and extremely reluctant to publish. And so, as you said, just had a handful of poems published during yes, her life. In her lifetime. She wasn't famous until after her death. That's right. It was posterity that did what they did for Emily. So the poems are in the trunk and she's getting sick and she is getting sicker and um, she realizes that it's the, the ebb and flow of her life is, is, is flowing off in the wrong direction. And she says to Margaret, um, when I die, I want you to take those poems and burn them. Because she did many revisions on poems. So we know that she was often not happy. And she wrote in a very, I mean, she wrote with all these dashes and capitalized in the middle of sentences. So she dies. She dies of Bright's disease, which in the world of antibiotics, she would never have died. In fact, my own grandmother died of Bright's disease at age 32 when my mother was five years old. So it gave me a great sense of what this was like for this woman to die at 54 and before she could be fully realized and possibly publish more. Who knows what would have happened? Not be a spinster, meet somebody, marry somebody. So she says to Margaret, um, basically I'm extracting from you a deathbed oath that you will burn those poems. So Margaret, being the defiant, strong-minded woman that she was, said, well, I come from a place where they're not really given to burning poems, and I'm not burning those poems. And in the trunk was also the only image, we know this is true, the only image of Emily, the daguerreotype, the famous image of her, that was taken when she was 16 years old. So there are scholars that somehow contend with this, but this is, this is Aoife Murray's research, that in that trunk was the salvation by Margaret Marr of many of Emily Dickinson's poems. So that's the arc of our story. We are speaking with Rosemary Kane. Her new play, 
Uh, Margaret Marr and the Celtification of Emily Dickinson will be performed at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield this Saturday at 7.30 p.m. The matinee will be this Sunday at 2 o'clock. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more with Rosemary Kane, and we'll hear more about Emily Dickinson and how this translates into this play, which I can't wait to see. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The holidays, baking, wrapping, decorating, and of course, shopping for that special gift. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. This holiday season, consider giving a private one-on-one personal training session with a Fitness Together gift card. Stop by our locations, Amherst or Northampton, to pick one up in person. Or give us a call and we'll drop one in the mail. Give a gift that keeps the ones you love fit and healthy. Happy holidays from all of us at Fitness Together. At American National, what's important to you is important to us. Just like every horse is unique, so is our equine coverage. American National's Equine Owner's Insurance is designed to address the inherent risks involved with owning horses. Flexible enough to provide property and liability coverage for operations of various sizes, yet can be tailored for your specific needs. We're right by your side. For more information, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Getting your credit score and credit report free is another great reason to bank at Greenfield Savings Bank. With the GSP Credit Center, you can monitor your credit score and credit report as often as you like, set up alerts, and find tips on how to improve your credit score. Monitoring your credit score and report is an important tool in protecting your finances and can help you identify errors and prevent fraud. Our GSB Credit Center is just one of the great benefits that comes free with both our free online banking and our free mobile app. And with the GSB mobile app, you can check your score and access your credit report free anytime and from anywhere using your mobile device. And checking your credit report at the GSB Credit Center will not affect your credit score. Sign up today at any of our offices or online. Greenfield Savings Bank. Greenfieldsavings.com. Member FDIC. Member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. There goes the light. Go ahead. You're on the air. When Radio Was relives the golden age of radio. Do you ever listen to the radio? Oh, I might tune in one of those comedy programs occasionally. Can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? Well, on a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. Yeah. I'm Greg Bell, and join me with a switch of a dial. When Radio Was brings you a whole world at your command. When Radio Was, right here, Sunday nights from 8 to 10 on 101.5 WHMP. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Rosie Kane, Rosemary Kane, who is the playwright. Her play, Margaret Marr and the Celtification of Emily Dickinson, will be at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield this Saturday. 
The performance is at 7.30 in the evening, and Sunday the matinee is at 2 o'clock. It is about Emily Dickinson, indeed. We've been talking about Emily Dickinson. I've learned more about Emily Dickinson this morning than really I couldn't imagine. I could not imagine most of this, uh, particularly her racism, which is, well, how buried in the story that we tell here in Western Massachusetts about her. But she changed. That's tell us did. a bit about that, and then we're going to get to the play itself. But tell us, she changed. She did. Why? How? So, so it's in the time of um, help wanted, no Irish need apply. So it's really quite common. I mean, her view of the Irish is very common. So Margaret Marr, the servant who came from Tipperary, was a very compelling personality from all that we know, described by Emily as Maggie warm, wild, and mighty. Well, that's a very good start to write a script. Mm. Yeah, that's quite the description. <laughs> Isn't it just? Another time described Maggie, the north wind of the family. So clearly there was a great energy about her, and that energy translated into changes within that population in the household. And it goes on towards the end where... This is my sense of how the ultimate form of Celtification, the symbol, the real live change that took place in Emily. Well, she was obsessed with death and she wrote lots and lots of poems about death. And in that sense, she was very Irish. The poem. <laughs> <laughs> so she had a leg up on the Celtification process. That. Yeah. So she writes this poem, which is recited by Emily, Carls by Emily Steve, um, Stephanie Carlson. I heard a buzz fly while I died. In other words, this buzzing fly was going to ruin her own death and that she was thoroughly enjoying. So she planned her death ahead and chose six Irish laborers. They were named, this is a fact, to carry her coffin, her casket out of the house and over to her resting place. Wow. Tell us about the play. So the play is divided, <clears throat> I suppose, in three sections, one might say. So we have the two leading characters, Mo McGilligan plays Maggie and Stephanie Carlson plays Emily. And we have an Irish-Greek chorus. How big is the whole cast, including the twelve? Twelve, okay. including the band. So we have a sort of Irish-Greek chorus and they drive the narrative. And, and that narrative is interspersed with songs. And I have used two songs from the Irish-Celtic canon. Celtic-Irish? Um, and they, I couldn't do better, a song of emigration called The Shores of America and a, a song of the famine called The Praties. They are small over here, Praties being potatoes, because it was the potato crop that failed. The Irish were so dependent on the potato for nutrition. And then the rest are the Emily poems I've set to music and three or four that are both lyrics and music I've written. So this is a musical? It is a musical. And the there's a band and the, there's a band, yes. And everyone has their vocals. Yes. Wow. Everyone and, sings. And everyone sings. And you wrote the play and the music. I did. Wow. I underestimated her in my introduction. Don't you think, Monty? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think so. There were so many more things you could have added to the resume. We had to stay out of trouble during the pandemic. We all overdrank and overate. I did, I did both of those while, while, writing, while writing the play. Did you learn something about Emily Dickinson that you didn't know? I didn't know much about her. I really didn't because I come from the land of William Butler Yeats. 
Yes. Emily Dickinson wasn't taught in school. You know, we had to commit vast volumes of verse to memory. And um, no, I didn't. But I lived in Amherst for 18 years. So then I was in I was in the land of Emily all that time. OK, before we go, tell us what you would like your audience to know about this play that we haven't covered before they go and see it again Saturday at 7.30, Sunday at 2 o'clock at Hawks and Reed. I assume that tickets are available online and Mm -hmm. can be bought online at Hawks and Reed. Okay, something you want the listeners, the people, the audience members to know. Well, the shift in, you know, who are acceptable people to come into the U.S., I think that this character is sort of the poster character for the help wanted, no Irish or whoever is on the bottom rung need apply. And so I think that that's kind of the prevailing arc of the story is what people have to do to be accepted and how hard it can still be to find acceptance. Is that good enough? That was amazing. That was amazing. Uh, Rosemary Kane's play, uh, Margaret Marr and the Celtification of Emily Dickinson. Again, Hawks and Reed in Greenfield this Saturday at 7.30, the matinee Sunday at 2 o'clock. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you very much. You're one of the most amazing people we have <laughs> ever met. And you that can fool is some it. of the people some of the time, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> <laughs> fool. <laughs> this is Bill Newman, WHMP. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Jess Tyler. An information session will be held in East Hampton tonight to discuss the city's water and sewer infrastructure. DPW Director Greg Nuttleman tells the Gazette the cost to operate the city's sewer, water, and wastewater treatment plant is rising. Material prices and energy costs due to decaying infrastructure are also increasing. The town is seeking to raise rates, but wants the public's input before rates are finalized. The meeting will be held in City Council Chambers at 50 Payson Avenue at 6 p.m. Tonight, Amherst Media will host an award ceremony to honor the latest recipients of the Gene Haggerty Award for Community Engagement and Social Change. Recipients of the award include former principal of the Fort Elementary School, Russ Vernon Jones. Jones was part of the committee that helped form the new Community Policing Initiative in Amherst Press, as well as the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Department. However, he says there's still more work to be done. In our second report, we made 13 recommendations. Only one of them has been implemented. The awards will be presented tonight in the Augusta Savage Gallery in the New Africa House on the UMass Amherst campus. Greenfield's property tax rate has been set at $19.65 per $1,000 of assessed value. This is a $2.67 drop from the previous fiscal year, the largest single-year reduction in at least 20 years, and the lowest tax rate since 2012. The new rate will be reflected in the third and fourth quarter tax bills coming out next month. Mostly cloudy this morning with rain developing by noon. Windy all afternoon as well. That rain heavy at times mid to late afternoon, a high of 52 to 56. Rain will taper off fairly quickly this evening, but the wind lasts all night. Overnight lows of 24 to 30. Mostly sunny, windy tomorrow, a high of 40 to 44. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El Senado aprobó el martes una legislación bipartidista para proteger los matrimonios entre personas del mismo sexo, una señal extraordinaria de cambio en la política nacional sobre el tema y una medida de alivio para los cientos de miles de parejas del mismo sexo que se han casado desde la decisión de la Corte Suprema de 2015 que legalizó el matrimonio homosexual a nivel nacional. El proyecto de ley que garantizaría que los matrimonios entre personas del mismo sexo e interraciales estén consagrados en la ley federal fue aprobado 61 a 30 el martes. El líder de la mayoría del Senado, Chuck Schumer, dijo que la legislación había tardado mucho en llegar y que formaba parte de la marcha difícil pero inexorable de Estados Unidos hacia una mayor igualdad. El proyecto de ley también protegería los matrimonios interraciales al exigir que los estados reconozcan los matrimonios legales independientemente del sexo, raza, etnia u origen nacional. En otras informaciones, la Cámara de Representantes de los Estados Unidos planea votar este miércoles para bloquear una posible huelga ferroviaria después de que el presidente Joe Biden advirtiera sobre las graves consecuencias económicas de una interrupción ferroviaria que podría ocurrir el 9 de diciembre. La presidenta de la Cámara de Representantes, Nancy Pelosi, dijo que los legisladores votarán el miércoles para imponer un contrato tentativo alcanzado en septiembre a una docena de sindicatos que representan a 115 mil trabajadores. No me gusta ir en contra de la capacidad de huelga de los sindicatos, pero sopesando las acciones, debemos evitar una huelga, dijo Pelosi el martes después de una reunión con Biden. Una interrupción del tráfico ferroviario podría congelar casi el 30% de los envíos de carga de Estados Unidos por peso, avivar la inflación que ya está aumentando y costarle a la economía estadounidense hasta 2 mil millones de dólares por día. Yo soy Johan Roshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome to the show Beverly Gage. Her new book is titled G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. She has received, the book has received the most amazing set of reviews I think I have ever seen for uh, a nonfiction author from the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, which I read and said it can't get better than this, and then I read the one in The New York Times, and it did get better than that. She's been reviewed uh, uh, in with glowing reviews in Slate and NPR and The Washington Post as well. As well, uh, Beverly Gage, congratulations on the book and congratulations on those amazing reviews. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been uh, It's been an exciting few weeks. We should know that uh, Beverly Gage is a professor of American history at Yale, uh, and this book is a lengthy book. I, I want to uh, share with you, uh, if I might, a bit of uh, my reaction, um, and it's such an accessible, well-written, engaging book. It's sort of a story you know, but you can't put the book down anyway. Here's, here's, here's what I want to know. I've been reading the book at the same time I've been watching Ken Burns' uh, film, the three-part series about America and the Holocaust. And one point I think that comes through from Ken Burns's film is America got the policy it wanted when it came to not, not protecting, not saving Jews. And in some ways, what I take away from your book, um, and please correct me if you think I have this wrong, is that with J. Edgar Hoover, America got the director of the FBI that it wanted, for the most part. And it's a reflection what all the things that went askew, all the, the red baiting, all the raids, um, all of the uh, uh, nativism, um, it's what America wanted. 
that J. Edgar Hoover didn't lead America he more as much as he reflected America. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. I think that's absolutely right. And it's really a great summary of one of the main points of the book, which is that Today, we tend to think about Hoover as this kind of one-dimensional villain of the 20th century, and we have this sort of flattering story, which is the, if we had only known what he was doing, certainly we would have uh, denounced that, turned against it, never allowed it to happen. But actually, most of what Hoover did, while he did engage in a series of secret operations, a lot of his point of view, a lot of the broad contours of his campaigns, particularly against groups on the left, were very widely known, and they were extremely popular. In fact, he was the single most popular public servant of certainly the 40s and 50s, though his reputation gets a little bit more checkered uh, by the late 1960s, which is the moment that we tend to think about. But what he was doing in the 60s was the same thing he was doing in the 20s and the 40s and the 50s. So what happened? Yeah, one of the really amazing things about Hoover's career, and one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book, is simply that he was there for so long. He became director of the FBI in 1924, before it was formally called the FBI, and he stayed there in that job for 48 years and died in the same job in 1972. So it's a fascinating story about power and how he stayed there for that long. Long, but it also suggests there are all sorts of continuities over that time period that we don't necessarily think about. And one of those is that things that Hoover pioneered, techniques that he pioneered against uh, revolutionaries or fascists, groups that were really pretty far outside the mainstream, ultimately came to be the same things that he's doing to the civil rights movement and to a figure like Martin Luther King. One aspect of your book that uh, uh, was disconcerting to me is that I, I just want to hate J. Edgar Hoover. I want to hate him from the start to the end. I just want to <laughs> hate him because of everything he did to the civil rights movement and to the anti-war movement and his uh, wiretapping Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and his bribing, essentially, or blackmailing elected officials, which is how, in some ways, he kept his job all those years. But the parts that, of the book that I found disconcerting were when, for example, after setting up, and you write about this brilliantly, all these lists of people, and he's going to go get them if World War II breaks out. And on the day that Pearl Harbor is, <clears throat> excuse me, attacked, he goes into effect, and he's they're picking up people who are believed to be dissidents or um, uh, enemies, alien enemies, enemy aliens. Um, and he's doing that same thing he did right after World War One with the, in the Pomerades, um, but then. You say, and you write, he didn't really approve of the uh, internment camps for Japanese Americans and American citizens. And he didn't really support the uh, uh, execution of Ethel Rosenberg. And there's some piece of him, well, I want to say that it's mitigating, but it is. Tell me about that. Yeah, there are these fascinating moments in his life and his career where I think he runs pretty counter to type or at least counter to our image of him, right? Hoover is 
particularly for liberals and progressives, kind of the figure that you love to hate. Uh, but he has these moments. You know, Japanese internment is one of them. The FBI had its own version of wartime internment where they were going after very particular people that they had decided, uh, people of Japanese descent, of German descent, and of Italian descent that they had decided were a threat to the nation. But when mass internment came along, the idea that you were going to send to camps everyone of Japanese descent, Hoover said a couple of things. He said, one, that sounds unconstitutional to me. Two, it sounds like a very bad idea politically, and it's going to come back to bite you. And three, you don't need to do that because we already know who the dangerous people are, and you don't actually need to uh, send everyone away to camps. And so he has these fascinating moments where sometimes he's acting out of self-interest or a combination of self-interest and principle, but, uh, you know, he's kind of doing the right thing. Another one is when he stands up to, to Joe McCarthy in the end, which we wouldn't really think about either. I, 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 I really, I, I was really just dumbstruck by some of these things that I learned about him in, in your book. I'd like to ask you about one more, because I had always thought, always, well, I have thought for a long time, that J. Edgar Hoover uh, really went after uh, gay and lesbians uh, because he was engaged in a, an enormous cover-up of his ho own homosexuality. And yet you say that it's not exactly clear that this man he was with, Clyde Tolson, all the time went to work with him every morning, was with him every just uh, just he was his male companion for decades and decades. And you then you say, but it's not exactly clear whether or not they in fact were involved in an intimate relationship. So spend spend a minute with us about that. I think it's pretty clear that their relationship was, in fact, very intimate in the sense that, as you say, they not only worked together as the number one and number two man uh, at the FBI, but they conducted their whole social lives together. They traveled together. They ate all of their meals together. They took care of each other when they were sick. Uh, they you know, went to the racetrack and the nightclub, and they were a very open and very widely accepted social couple. Um, and so in that sense, they were each other's primary relationship. Uh, probably most people don't go through their whole lives not having sex with anyone. They certainly weren't having sex with women. So we might say perhaps they were uh, engaged in some sort of sexual relationship with each other. But the fact is that we don't know that. Um, they certainly denied it. In fact, Hoover uh, went out and sent FBI agents after anyone uh, who suggested, you know, I heard this thing about the director and his sexuality. You would get a knock on your door and an FBI agent would be standing there saying, you know, you shouldn't say these things about the director. Um, and so he policed his own image very carefully. Uh, he did engage in the purge of other homosexuals in the federal government in the 40s and 50s. So it's a, it's a complicated story like many parts of Hoover's life. I, I have a question for you. you. You've written this amazing book. Um, you've spent years researching J. Edgar Hoover. Your judgment about him, which I would like you to give us the final word on, is not positive. And I'm wondering how you spend so much of your time as a scholar, but more as a person and a writer, 
and be able to write so critically about someone who you must have some affection for or you wouldn't have been able to spend this enormous amount of time and energy and talent to write about him. I did feel that I got to know him as I worked on the project without ultimately you know, coming necessarily to admire him. Um, mainly, I'm just really fascinated by some of the darker chapters of American history. I'm fascinated by the growth of the federal government. And I'm really fascinated by the question, which is, in many ways, sort of the central question of the book, which is, how did this one man shape so many parts of our political life from the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the national security state, how we think about crime and policing and presidential politics. I mean, it's just this vast uh, array of issues. And, uh, and that's really what kept me hooked in. I would like to spend, we just have a couple minutes left, uh, with you talking about J. Edgar Hoover's racism, which is prominent and un unmitigated throughout his life. At least that's my impression. Uh, what do you say about that? And how was that a connecting piece of fabric through all of the presidents he served and all of the FBI's uh, sometimes notorious actions under his leadership? It's a long-running theme in the book. I think for many people, you know, the most famous episodes come out of the 1960s, the FBI's attacks on Martin Luther King, on the civil rights movement, on the Black Panthers. Um, and those are, are, are really powerful in some ways. Uh, I think the most um, tragic and damning parts of Hoover's career. But one of my questions was, where did that come from? Uh, how did he arrive at these ideas? And so I spent a lot of time researching and, and, and writing about his early life, the fact that he grew up in Washington, D.C., which was a city that was uh, segregating during the period of his childhood. And then when he was in college in Washington, joined this uh, fraternity called Kappa Alpha, which was very explicitly dedicated to preserving uh, the memory of the Confederacy. Um, its most famous member, Hoover, was there, was a man named Thomas Dixon, who was a novelist who wrote uh, the pro-Klan books that ultimately became the movie The Birth of a Nation. And so it was fascinating to just trace these continuities from very early in the 20th century um, all the way up into the 60s and 70s. And as you point out, he was very proud of his Kappa Alpha uh, heritage and uh, membership, and he maintained it uh, till his death. We have been speaking with Beverly Gage. Her new book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, available at your local independent bookstore. Really, I hope you buy it there, and I hope you read it. It's an amazing read. Thank you so much for your time, Beverly Gage, and thank you so much for this book. Thanks very much. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
Cooper's Corner in Florence can be a real time saver for you around the holidays. When you run out, run in. We have what you need. Cooper's is also the place to order fresh baked from scratch pies or to pick up a nice wine or fresh produce or deli party platters. Cooper's Corner, a part of the community for nearly 50 years. We're the Coopers. We're your neighbors. We treat you right. Main and Chestnut Streets, Route 9, Florence. Open every day of the year. And in Northampton, State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits has what you need for the holidays and all year long. Open seven days. The State Street Deli has the cheese you want for holiday entertainment like genuine Italian Parmesan, free with herbs, Morbier, French Saint Andre, and award-winning domestic cheese such as Vermont cheddar, Maytag blue, and goat cheese. You'll also find at State Street a great selection of cold cuts and pâtés. And we create the best deli platters and fruit baskets. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton. Open till 9 every day. An education coordinator is wanted in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Duties include planning and organizing child care and educational enrichment programs, monitoring and evaluating student progress and programming the curriculum, maintaining a safe and healthy environment for students, and more. Send your resume to Master Hayos Taekwondo Incorporated, 225 South Street, Holyoke, Massachusetts, 01040. That's Master Hayos Taekwondo Incorporated, 225 South Street, Holyoke, Massachusetts, 01040. The Hot Chocolate Run for Safe Passage is about all of us. Our community coming together to make Hampshire County safer for survivors of domestic violence. Safer for everyone. And you can help. Right here, right now. Secure your spot in this year's Hot Chocolate Run, happening Sunday, December 4th. Register and create your fundraising page today at hotchocolaterun.com. Join us for this celebrated community event and be a part of making safety, hope, and healing possible. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome back to the show one Natalia Munoz. This is Viacon Munoz. And I would like to ask you about social media, which is a topic that's been on my mind since I've been up early this morning, <laughs> reading about Elon Musk, yes. who is obviously an enormous influence on uh, social media and who, well, portrays himself as a free speech warrior. Uh, this piece in the Times today, a lengthy piece, I recommend it, under the rubric on politics, a free speech warrior with a battle plan that is all over the place. It's pretty interesting. It's really going to be uh, consequential to the United States and the world. What happens with Musk? And the world. 
and social media. And I would appreciate your thoughts on where this social media landscape is now, how it appears, and how it will be. Well, I know this is difficult, but what do you think the future is going to bring? Um, I would like to see the future bring the end of social media. That if you want to share photographs... Oh, good. Back to the <laughs> or future. Or no, back to the, back to the past. <laughs> back to the past, exactly. <laughs> if you want to show us you know, your awesome vacation or whatever you prepared for dinner or whatever you're doing in the garden, that's all beautiful stuff. I want to know it. Monty, you're as cute today as you were the first time I met you oh, like seven so years ago. Okay, we're going to have to take a break see, now. You can see all those pictures on my Facebook account. <laughs> I'm just looking at Monty. And it's just, oh, my goodness. Can we make Monty blush? Yeah. Vote today on your social media. Go to Facebook and vote. One way to Monty blushes or not. Okay. <laughs> and, the, uh, I th- and especially because Musk doesn't seem to have uh, emotional balance in, his, in, his, in himself. It's so dangerous that he's the owner of a giant social media network and that all these engineers have left. So it makes everybody who's still on Twitter vulnerable to getting hacked. Uh, I don't think Musk knows what free speech really is about. And he has basically the world's ear at his back end call. Monty, do you use social media? I do. I have accounts on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, but I use it very sparingly and usually because I'm in the media as a promotional tool for either, like, say, the Food Bank March, which was last week. Or, right. Um, I, was it I'm, half a million dollars almost? See. Yeah, Monty. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, or, uh, you know, promoting what's going on at the Shea. So I don't put a lot of opinions on there, <laughs> and I think that'll... Uh, be good so that it yeah. doesn't come back to haunt me someday. I often use it as an archive for uh, uh-huh. pictures of family vacations yeah. and things like that. Yeah. I think of as far as those go, like mm-hmm. Instagram might be the best of the three where it's like you can just make it a photo depository and, mm-hmm. you know, you're not putting up controversial or not true links about news sites. It's really pictures still mostly. But Twitter is complicated. Facebook is complicated. And those are the ones Instagram that I, is less, far less complicated. I think so. TikTok, I know, is big with the kids these days. I don't have one of those, but oh. my kids show me TikTok things. Or I, as an old man, watch TikTok oh, reels on Facebook like, uh, you know, Gen Xers do, I guess. What's so. your handle on um What's my in, handle? Uh, t- oh, on Instagram good. I have girl. a handle. <laughs> At Bill Newman. <laughs> At Bill Newman. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think of the... As we've had social media now for what more than what is it ten years, fifteen years? So yeah, I mean, well, if you count MySpace, yeah. which was you oh, know MySpace. that was back at least fifteen I loved years MySpace. ago. See, so there's hope that there was things that happen and evolve and yeah. go away. So yeah. if you don't want Twitter to be yeah. around forever, yeah, it might go away and something better might come about. Well, isn't it is is it true that the that we would be better off without this way of communicating? Twitter, I'm talking about, and also Facebook because you know how they they poach us. We're the, like we're poached. Yeah, we are. We're poached. The, we are the product. Yes, we are the product. We are the ivory horns mm-hmm. that Mark Zuckerberg cuts off our heads. Bill. Okay, so <laughs> let me yeah. share with you a couple of sentences from this story, which yeah. I think are fascinating. It mm-hmm. says even to those who closely follow free speech debates around internet technology, it's all pretty baffling. If anyone can get inside his Musk's head, I'd love to hear it. Says an appellate lawyer from Lawyer for Tech Freedom a nonpartisan think tank. He seems to shift, that is Musk, seems to shift from free speech absolutism until he decides he doesn't like something. <laughs> That's right. And that is, well, 
that that is what we see with Musk. I'm all for free speech as long as the free speech is freely saying what I believe and not something that I disagree with. Um, the classic was when uh, Kathy Griffin, the comedian, changed right. her face her Twitter handle to Elon Musk and was portraying herself as Elon Musk. He shut her out immediately. Then there were all. Oh, know, I didn't hear oh, that. It was, it's unbelievable. This whole thing has been exciting to watch in so <laughs> many ways because, uh, especially, I'm imagining for civil liberties lawyer. Mm -hmm. But you know, there was Elon Musk's grand idea that you can get a blue check mark, a verified account, if you just pay eight dollars a month. Mm -hmm. And somebody started a verified account with a blue check mark as Eli Lilly Company, the pharmaceutical company, oh, and man. then said on Twitter with their what looked to be authenticated yeah. account. Insulin is now free. Oh, that's cool. Eli Lilly's stock price dropped catastrophically. They lost billions of dollars Whoa. in a moment with an $8 purchase that other Twitter users were saying, Whoa. this $8 was the greatest investment in the defeat of capitalism that we could have right. ever seen. So it, he's open. He's not thinking this through. He's doing a bunch of knee-jerk reactions. And when a, a uber-rich mad oligarch with too much power and CEO of a company makes knee-jerk reactions like that, there are consequences. Yeah, there are global consequences. Yeah, he's going to find out he's not as powerful as he thinks. Why do you say that? Because he seems pretty powerful with owning Twitter. He does, and he is. But as this time... And perdóname, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Bill. You, the ACLU, you're always protecting people's free speech. you got to stop that. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, please go on. <laughs> Let me just finish the sentence yeah. that I had because mm -hmm. what the Times article points out is what, what Musk is going to run into is his conflicts of interest around Tesla because Tesla, Tesla's, the cars are produced in China. And just wait till China leans on Twitter and tells them to crack down on dissidents or journalists who are using Twitter. Just wait to see how that works out. Is that possible? Is I mean, that, I mean, it is that's possible. possible. Is that's it probable? probable. It's probable that China would pressure Musk. You bet to you. do because A or B because his cars are manufactured. Yeah, his want, cars are manufactured in China, or parts to his cars no, are manufactured. I, I think significant parts. Yeah, they'll have that leverage over him, and they will act. You know, they would certainly ask whomever is at the helm well, of Twitter to, to the, suppress. Well, then why didn't the the FCC or you know one of these uh, oversight government entities say Musk? No, you own these other companies. What, Bill? No, because it's exactly right. The government does not have regulatory control over social media. And that is because of a law, uh, uh, a couple of laws, but uh, one of which is the federal law that says social media companies are not liable. They're not responsible for. They're not legally vulnerable to anything that is posted on their sites. It is the person who posts it that may be liable, but unlike... Uh, a newspaper if it or, or a radio station, if you publish something that is untrue or defamatory, the newspaper or the radio station can be sued. But social media companies are exempt. Who from exempted any of that. them? Was that Mitch McConnell and and who did that? No, it goes back a long time, mm. uh, and the law has been in place for a long time, and it was there because people wanted to have a uh, social media uh, environment and universe where people could say what they wanted um, because other than if without that uh, immunity under federal law and now under some state laws, including Florida, the question would be, or not the question would be, the reality would be 
that they publish something that somebody doesn't like, and then instantly there are a dozen lawsuits, and every day there are dozens of lawsuits. And without this protection, the Internet would not have become, social media would not have become what it is now. Oh, my goodness. So shoulda, coulda, woulda. I wish we would have. Uh, but you wouldn't have had it. I mean, you would not have had any of these late. platforms. It's not too late. Oh, that, and that's right. And the, put, the Supreme Court might, in fact, make a ruling that says, in fact, that law is not legal, is not constitutional. The Supreme Court. This the, Supreme Court. This Supreme Court. Okay. All right. We'll okay. see. We'll see. Yeah. It's, it's, it's because I think that before Musk, before Trump, Twitter, Twitter was, was fun. It was a great place to follow authors or you know, singers, the nerds, whatever. And the I was I just, I had an account that I closed like three weeks ago. It was great. I had a, the most beautiful account I've ever had, which was just I was following Puerto Rico because the media in Puerto Rico is so awful. But then I was following something like I don't know, I don't even remember forty or fifty different people and organizations, nonprofits, and I got a good sense of. What's really happening in Puerto Rico day to day, as opposed to whatever the the media that is owned by pro-statehood uh, families think is happening? And you will bring a guest with you in coming weeks so we yes. can hear more about that? Yes. Yes. Are we leaving? We're leaving. We're leaving. Okay. Monty, Bill, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming. You want to tell Monty how cute he looks again oh, today? Oh, Monty, you thank really you. are cute. <laughs> you are so cute. Look, you wouldn't imagine how cute I was when I first joined Facebook. I look like 100, uh. year, 100 years younger or something like that. Natalia It's happening here in the Valley. We're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's